Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Remakers. I'm Lily, and I'm joined by my wonderful colleague, Millie. It's lovely to see your face, Millie. It's lovely to be here. And we are coming to you with our final conversation for this official season and a bit of a preview of a bonus summer series that's going to be landing in your ears um, over the summer break. So really, this is about kind of looking back on a theme that's been threaded throughout our work and thinking this year and which has landed us into some really interesting spaces and conversations, um, which is this question of what is the public good? What is our kind of purpose as a country? What are we aiming for? What should be the values that drive our decision-making and our leadership? And we first introduced this idea on the podcast at the start of season two. So if you haven't already listened to them and you're wondering what on earth I'm talking about, you can go and check out uh, episode two and episode three of season two, which is called What is Our Why? as a country. So Millie, you've been kind of leading us through this thinking and this work and this research into some interesting spaces. And these conversations have gone out into some wonderful places. And um, and that is why we are now able to share a summer series. So can you just kind of introduce people a little bit to this and, and where these conversations have started to go? Yeah. So in case people don't want to go back and listen to the other two episodes, although I do recommend it, we conducted some work and we asked people, well, what things, what public good do you want available to you in your communities and who should provide it? And the very speed version of the finding is, is that people said, you know, they want access to housing, healthcare, education, jobs, access to the internet and access to nature, you know, unsurprising. And then kind of the much deeper part of that conversation was actually people really want the opportunity and ability to care and be cared for. And they want the infrastructure to enable that. So the hospitals, but also the time and the support to do that work. People want to connect to each other and to place. And again, the infrastructure to do that. That's not just the roads, but it's the lunch breaks and, you know, time to share a muffin. Um, and people want to contribute and they want to contribute both kind of locally and nationally. And I think we really saw that come to play in the election in the middle of the year with the community-minded independence. Like that was people really getting on the contribution bandwagon and, and feeling that. So that's the work in a nutshell. We'll put a link to the quite brief report in the show notes. But it sparked all these conversations in a whole lot of really different arenas. Um, so we've been briefing uh, you know, government departments, civil society organisations, community groups, and it's really fascinating to see where kind of kernels for these ideas sprout. And one of my favourite collaborations for this year has been with the Women's Health Goulburn Northeast Network, and they're an organisation that worked with us as part of the research, and then we hosted a conversation series with them around the three Cs, so care, connection, contribution. Um, and as you said, Lily, we're, we're going to be putting those conversations up as a summer series for the podcast where we had three panellists for each of them really helping us explore, like, what, what does it look like to think about care differently? And these conversations don't sort of give us the answer and, you know, you do this and then you do this and then you do this. <laughs> Ten but, steps to reinventing yeah. care and the infrastructure involved. That's right. But there's really interesting things, like um, there was a woman Beth Thornburg, who was saying, well, why do we care? You know, we have a 
a um, national park and we put a fence and on one side is the national park and the other side is not the national park. So we've decided as a community to care for one side of the fence like that. So we had these really interesting conversations about how do we decide boundaries of care and what does that mean for how we then resource care and caring? And the same thing for connection, you know, what does it look like we had um, the wonderful Dr. Emma Lee, who's been on the podcast previously, and her radical approach to to love in the face of oppression, basically, and connection. Um, and I'll tell you what, after she started to speak, I think all of us were like, well, that was amazing. Let's just all go and sit in the rain and like let that sink in and we'll all <laughs> stop talking. So, you know, that was quite a moving quite profound conversation um, and the same with contributions and really interesting ideas raised. So yeah, I recommend having a listen when it comes out. Yeah. Look, I'm so looking forward to sharing that and, um, and being able to be a kind of a fly on the wall in that room and, and with those people. And um, I think one of my other favorite places that this conversation has landed this year is with a kind of little little understood, uh, probably not overly appreciated group of people. This sounds like even saying the term sounds like the punchline to some kind of bad joke, but our, our public servants, yeah, our public servants who are in many ways custodians of the public good. But you found in the research that when you talk to people about, you know, what do we want for our communities and for our country and who should provide it, people don't think about like the people who do the work of government at all, really. What does government mean to people when you say to them, well, you know, who should be doing this or what, what is government here for? Yeah. I mean, I'll have to preface this by saying 2022 was the year Lily fell in love with public servants. <laughs> um, Lily's, Lily, you've heard me gush about how amazing it is to work with them. So I grew up in Canberra, right? the you know the hometown of the public servant but didn't actually grow up with a public in a public servant family um so although public servants were on my radar they're sort of you know I haven't absorbed how they work and I think that is true of most Australians and you know in when we were asking people well who should be providing the public good we heard a lot of people say oh the government although they did kind of say I'm not sure they're up to it but the only way people ever referenced the government was either politicians who at the time they were just cranky with all of them or the kind of faceless bureaucracy of Centrelink where they had a really crap interaction and the blame for that was kind of put back to, again, to the politicians. And although as part of the research we did speak to a couple of public servants who obviously talked about the public service, it just, it was just entirely absent from the general conversations about the role of government. And given how many thousands of people work for the public service and given that it is the institution and mechanism by which, you know, the primary one by which the government actually delivers on its ideas for the country, it's a really weird blind spot, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. And if we don't understand something, we can't valid, like if it's invisible, except for when we've had a crap experience, then we can't value it. We can't defend it. We can't talk about how to reform it. We can't talk about what its purpose is and how well it's living up to that purpose. Um, and so I just loved that through our kind of networks and, and putting the public good work out into the world that you were approached by 
some really senior current and former public servants who said, we want to have these conversations. Like we want to actually get the right people in the room, the people who are at the top of the ladder to talk about purpose, values, you know, the things that the the sort of hidden assumptions behind what we do, where we're at and where we need to go. And and I think um, w- as you have been falling in love with the public servants, like what has come back to me uh, in your feedback is like, they're just so effective. Like they just get up things like they do because that's not the stereotype. The stereotype is, you know, way down, bureaucratic, pencil pushing, um, slow, risk adverse, or just looking out for their own little box that they've got to tick, not thinking about the bigger picture. And do you now feel, I mean, like that's always been a bit of an unfair characterization and let's be, you know, let's be honest here. Like that caricature allows them to then be sacked. It allows people to then have their work kind of hollowed out and outsourced to expensive private consulting firms who are some of the biggest donors to political parties. So there's an agenda there. It's not some like kind of hapless organic stereotype. Like it's something that gets fueled. And there has been certainly in the US, we see it so clearly with the Republican party. Like there is this um, strategy of like, let's deplete and diminish government so much that people's expectations become so low that everything becomes outsourced for profit that possibly can. Um, And it just becomes this fueled self-fulfilling prophecy that just gets kind of worse and worse and worse. And so I love being a dual citizen here that people love their public institutions, actually, even though we don't necessarily think about the public service behind them or the people that, you know, like we, we like them because they kind of do work like, okay, Centerlink has long wait and hold times. And often people do have, you know, but if you actually get through to somebody, like chances are you're going to get somebody helpful or the AEC runs really effective, fair and free elections that are really well organized or, you know, Medicare isn't perfect and it needs more funding, but by God, I can take my Medicare card to the doctor and I don't have to deal with 8,000 private insurance company copay paperwork slips. Like I think Australia's institutions serve Australians pretty well. And also there's always kind of room for it to be better. But anyway, that's my round robin. I'm curious what you found in that room that when those public servants and former public servants got together in a very kind of rarefied conversation to sort of explore, well, you know, what, what is going on here and, and where do we think we need to do things differently? Because we now do have a government that's actually interested in changing the way that the public service are treated and resourced. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I think firstly, we are not very good at thinking about the public service as being, you know, from the very high level policymakers down to, you know, or not down across it's, it's it's a hierarchy like that, although pay wise, it probably is, um, you know, nurses or people running the kind of social security offices. So remembering that public service is a full range. And I think it's really important to reclaim that. Um, The second thing is you were making the point about, you know, the stereotypes of pencil pushes and risk averse and and those sorts of things. And I think, you know, to a certain degree that is true. And, you know, one of the challenges I think a lot of these people in the room were talking about was, yeah, there has, we've, we've gone way too far into the risk averse side of things and the public service has lost its mojo. And that's not just that group. There's a review that was done in 2018, 2019 called the 30 review, which was a big review into the public service. And 
the, it was done for the Morrison government. The Morrison government basically just sort of swept it under the carpet and the Albanese government has actually committed to kind of taking on, you know, revisiting it and addressing some of the issues. And that review makes really clear that the, the public service isn't broken or, or it's broken and needs fixing rather than it's it's a completely crap thing. Um, and it's really worth people going and reading just the like executive summary of that because it it sets out what the public service could be and could do. And that's what I saw in the room. And that was this like real commitment by individuals to do right by the public, to, you know, be servants of the public. And even kind of more amazingly was that they, the, the people in the room weren't just saying that's how they felt they were saying that's what they saw in most of the public servants. Um, and so I think that, I mean, for me, that that's, it's simple but really heartening to think like, ah, oh, the people in these institutions, probably nine out of ten, actually really care. And at the same time, they they do have a small space to operate in. You know, they they are probably both fast and slow, depending on which industry, you know, where which sector you're looking at them from. And that, that slowness is a strength and a weakness, right? Like on the one hand, it means there's really thoughtful stability. On the other hand, it means stuff doesn't happen and, you know, things don't happen when they need to. So for me, this conversation was really about airing a whole, a whole lot of things, but about one, why it exists in the first place and going back to, you know, that's why the 30 review is worth having a look at because if you're new to it all, it, it does actually lay out some important pieces. But that reminder of like, oh, this is a setup to serve us and genuinely and it's flawed and it needs fixing and we need to enable our public servants to to take risks in a way that benefits all of us and holds us accountable. And I, I think it's tricky and unresolved because the public service serves the public and at the same time they're serving the government of the day. And so... Uh, we're not always going to like what they do, but at the very least, let's start talking about it and seeing what it could do and what it already does. And do you think there's going to be more appetite out of this for kind of some more visible conversations? I don't know if there are any journalists listening to this, but like media profiles that are kind of thoughtfully delving into some of these questions of like, yeah, you know, what do we want here? What's possible? And what what would it take to kind of, you know, pivot from from where we feel like things are kind of grinding along to something that is more effective or inspiring or kind of purpose um, driven in mind? I mean, I think there's a big conversation that needs to happen about like, what is the role of government and the public service? What is the role of business? What is the role of civil society? You know, I think all of this is up for grabs in some ways at the moment after the year we've had with COVID and election, you know, th these changes do mean that. So I think there is a really, you talked about it before, that the story of the public service has been really undermined on purpose, you know, so that it can be gutted and made smaller. But there are also, you know, I was only learning about this today, but there are also amazing examples. Like New Zealand has in the last 20 years, I think, really radically shifted how they how their public service works and it is really values embedded so like the public servants have a lot more agency around you know that I, I don't know the details but around leading with values um which we don't one of the things I learned from this group was 
for a group of people embedded kind of in the political space, no one talks politics um, or values. And, you know, people in the group were saying that's that's to our detriment. So I think kind of looking for where models exist of, of the public service and, and getting outside of those stereotypes to say, like, this is what it does. Like, imagine what it could do and how do we, how do we set up a framework? How do we make the structural changes required? And the 30 review does have some suggestions for that. But how do we, yeah, how do we make the changes required so, so people are proud of not only our public service, but of being a public servant. You know that that story of um, uh, when NASA put put a man on the moon, and the guy in the you know the president walks into the lift and meets someone and says, "Oh, what do you do here?" And the, someone says, "You know, I'm helping to put a man on the moon." And it was the cleaner for the building. You know that story of sense of we're all working for this amazing thing. And I I I think there's potential there. Yeah. And I, I think, um, I think pockets of that definitely exist. And, you know, it's funny if this was a business, it would have a huge marketing budget just devoted to telling the stories of how awesome it is, you know, and yet, um, when it's something that by design is kind of meant to be a bit invisible and hidden, and we only think about it when it goes wrong. Um, that's sort of another one of the baked in challenges. Yeah. And let's be honest, like we're all really skeptical of government advertising, right? Yeah, totally. If a government puts an ad on TV telling me how great the public service is, I'll probably like, oh God, change the channel. Like, yeah, you know, I think, and I think you raised this with me, Lily, that the role of the public servant is to be calm and thoughtful and measured and not show emotion. And that's you know, part of this group conversation, they were saying there's this idea now that policy is all rational and science-based when actually it's quite driven by the kind of neoliberal agenda. And so there's a risk. I would love to see public servants able to open up publicly and in the media about the kind of nice emotional side of their job. You know, I, I mean, oh, I just love working with the public service. I mean, no one's going to say that on the news, but like instead of having to perform kind of this this fake neutrality all the time. Mm. Um, and when you say it's driven by the neoliberal agenda, that's because at the end of the day, the argument that gets things over the line is this is going to save money or this is the cheapest solution or. Yeah. And I was also interested to hear as part of this conversation um, that we were having recently that if there's also this kind of, I'm going to invent a word, like the scientification of policy, you know, that yeah. there is a rational scientific answer to everything when actually so many policies are trying to deal with complex, wicked social problems that are values laden in how we approach them. So I think it's also being, you know, how do we have a context where we can say sometimes I don't know, or we're going to try this or this is what we're trying to do, but we don't know how. But it also goes back to like in the, um, you know, in an article that we wrote um, for the Australian Quarterly, we talk about, you know, is the purpose of our welfare system to make people feel supported or ashamed? Is the purpose of our education system to help every child reach their full potential or to sort people more completely into their pre-existing categories of advantage or disadvantage? You know, like 
And so, like you say, the that conflict between the government of the day and its ideology that is supposed to be invisible, but is very much driving, you know, and then their duty to kind of serve the public through that. And I think um, we're going to have a blog up about this as well, which we'll link to in the show notes for people if you want to dive more into some of the ideas from this conversation. But like one of the examples given was, you know, in Australia, we have a quite unusual situation where we give quite a lot of public funding to private schools. And it's because there's an implicit um, sort of assumption in that policy space that school choice is the highest good. Therefore, we need to fund, you know, public and private alike and let parents, you know, vote with their feet to make the extra put the extra money into a private school if that's where they want to send their child, you know, and there are many other um, values that could be the highest, you know, kind of top of the ladder of of that decision-making tree. Um, Just to mix my metaphor here, you know, it's not certainly what Finland's talking about when they think about how to plan their school system. So yeah, I, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And, and those values just become sort of invisibly embedded because there's no time to talk about them. And, you know, I think where I'm, you know, just still in the beginning of this journey, but I think where I am is at the very least, let's air this stuff so that we can know that we are making decisions based on values rather than a pretend neutrality, which can't, you know, we can't have hundred percent neutral because we're all human. Yeah. And I always, you know, see the example too, in the um, kind of early childhood education debate and, you know, is our highest value, how do we get, and it's usually women back to, back to the workforce as quickly as possible to be contributing to the economy and making sure that they don't retire with less money and less superannuation and um, that their careers don't pay a penalty. And those are all valid and important questions, right? Like those are all valid goals. But what we're not starting with is how do we set up a system where human beings thrive? How do we set up a system where children and family can be supported um, for the best, you know, to, to grow well, you know, because we would arrive at very potentially different um, solutions from that question. So I do love that you're talking about this. I do love that you've fallen in love with public servants this year and that, you know, kind of this invisible hand of the public good is something that we can hopefully help Um in some small way to make more visible and yeah, to see new conversations sort of around. Um, I think I'm also interested in and thinking about next year, kind of like the flip side of this coin, which is like, what is the role of the private sector in delivering on the public good? You know, we are living in a time of such rapid, much of it driven by the environmental climate crisis, transformation of business and this idea that um, purpose is now, you know, going head to head with profit as kind of like the the driving um, operating kind of motive of business or that it's, it's the ultimate competitive advantage. There's all of these um, sectors springing up. I'm going to be on a podcast next year with, you know, a bunch of kind of for-purpose social entrepreneurs who are starting businesses. I've, I've been in that space and, and people are really sincere. And yet, this, the kind of, I feel like there's still just the the sprinkles on top of the much bigger thing, you know, um, that is still kind of operating, uh, from a certain set of assumptions. And, you know, I think because I am kind of always looking at what's going on in, in the U S as a bit of a, like, cautionary tale most of the time. You know, I was speaking to a relative on the weekend. She's like, well, we're basically an oligarchy now. You know, let's be honest. It's whatever the biggest companies are in America that kind of call the shots and government just needs to get out of the way. This is a woman who votes Democrat, you know, like she's not saying it's a good thing. She's just saying that that's where the power is. And, 
Um, and there have been a whole bunch of assumptions in the American political context about, well, business is where the innovation is, business is where the, you know, any problem that can be solved in the private sector, we should let solve. And we should basically let them call the shots because let's be honest, they're the ones that are really, you know, running the world. That's where the power really is, is something that I hear a lot. Um, and so for my money, I want to better understand um, what... I want to try to separate more the PR of like, oh, let's transform capitalism from the kind of reality of of what's really taking place. And what would it actually look like to create an economy for the public good? You know, what is an economy that's good for people and planet where it's not just about um, kind of intervening to stem the worst of the effects, but like the economy is a force for good and that real upstream economic analysis is one of our favorite economists, Catherine Trebek would say, um, what does that look like? And, and where is it happening and where is it greenwash and where is it just a glimmer of hope in our imagination? And I, I think that connection, you know, I'm, I'm excited that you're excited about that stuff because I think it's a really important missing piece of the puzzle. And that connection I was saying before between, you know, civil society, community, government, and business. And in this recent roundtable with the public servants, you know, I loved it. one of the guys said something like, um, you know, we can't let the, you know, when we're talking about what the government should do, we can't let the private sector off the hook. And, you know, he said via the Corporations Act and sort of other ways we deal with, with business, we're kind of saying, okay, we'll give you all these concessions, like tax concessions, you know, stuff that reduces your risk, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not kind of saying, oh, by the way, that's in exchange for you serving the public good. We're not doing this so that a few individuals can just get really, really rich. And I, so I think it's, it's yeah, exciting to see what would a new economy look like that, you know, we had its, had its role, had its space and connected to other key kind of mechanisms and institutions. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think if we're doing anything at the moment right now, as a human species, we are reinventing, <laughs> like, <laughs> I hope so. you know, what do they say? The future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. You know, like we, we have disruption. It's going to keep coming at us. Like climate disruptions are going to keep coming at us. Um, the, the pandemic isn't over and there unfortunately will be other pandemics in our lifetimes. Most likely. I mean, you know, it's, it, it, life on earth is precarious and um, we are a very adaptable creative species. So I think it it is kind of a, a cool time to be alive. You know, it feels like there are a lot of needles to thread, but it also feels like a time of such quick transformation and change. And so we just are trying to make sure that we're transforming for purpose and in the right ways. You know, I mean, even like this is a, a sort of stupid example, but like the kind of implosion of Twitter since Elon Musk took it over. And I'm reading so many brilliant articles. I'll put one in the show notes from Ezra Klein about kind of like, you know, they talk about this as the public square. It's not the public square. The public square is owned or governed or is some kind of actual public space. Like this is when it's one person who kind of owns it and calls the shots and that's advertising or that's, you know, that's your shop front window. Like it's a very different thing and all the stuff that flow on from that. And what would it look like to reinvent social media for the public good? Like, you know, it's, I just think we're living through a time where some of our best and brightest minds are coming together around these questions of building the new. And that to me is just incredibly exciting and gives me hope when I look at the stuff that we still need to figure out. 
Yeah, I think, and that Twitter example is a great one because it has been the public square. It's been, you know, sure, there's people behind the scenes running it, but and now, you know, Musk is running it and it's gone wild. But, you know, it still served a public square purpose, but we have so little control over it. And you're right, that's like where... Where can we look at business and say, business is doing this well, but shouldn't be controlling it? Um, mm-hmm. You know, how do we bring it into the fold of, I don't know, collective ownership or limit the powers that any one person has to hold public spaces? I think they're, they're really important and big questions. Yeah. And people bring up and it's brought up in this article, you know, the example of Wikipedia, for for instance, you know, it, it it's not there to harvest our attention to make more money off advertisers. Like it's serving a very different function or Audrey Tang and the sort of transformation of the kind of digital government in Taiwan, which is another fascinating case. Like there are pockets of this. It is not just kind of idealistic imaginings, um, but articulating that like, this is a, this is a value that we want to see realized rather than just, well, the highest purpose is obviously to make the most amount of money and going with our merry lives. So on that note, I wanted to take us out and um and kind of wrap up this, you know, formal season of the podcast with a the summer series still to come. Um with just a couple of quick like what are you going to be reading? What are you what do you think is worth people's time to have a listen to if they have some time over the summer? Like where's your brain going to be or what would you recommend for others? Well, I recommend just reading easy fiction over the summer <laughs> to be honest. Um, I'm not going to be reading no world-changing books over summer, but which I am you proud are of you. Going to be doing that. Um, I think there's a couple of ones on my list. Uh, one is Living Democracy, Tim mm-hmm. Hollow's book, Living Democracy. Which, even if you only read the first chapter, I found it a really helpful way of thinking about the idea of democracy as something that we have to do, we have to live, and also as something that is alive, and how we try and connect. You know the neighborhood to the, the big system and the ecology. So it's, a, you know, if you want to read a nerd book over summer, read that one. Um, and the book that I am really keen to read, having listened to her on a podcast is um, Trisha Hersey's Rest is Resistance. And I mean, everyone probably knows I'm really passionate about care and rest and um, how we do that differently. And uh, from just listening briefly to her podcast, uh, she does this amazing thing. She's a kind of a performance artist where she rests. Um, she's an African-American woman and she rests and invites other African-American people to rest in public as an act of kind of resistance and defiance. And it just really has shaken up in my mind what resistance can look like and what doing things differently publicly can look like. Yeah. Mm. What about you? She's gorgeous. I've also heard her interviewed on podcasts and yeah, she makes you so passionate. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Look, I am going to recommend a podcast and a book. Um, So, well, actually there are two economics books on my list and I can't promise that I'm going to get to them both like, you know, from a beach, but I'm going to try. Um, one is the classic Donut Economics by Kate Rayworth, um, which is really a kind of circular economy. How do we have an economy within planetary boundaries, within the kind of that meets the social equity needs that humans have to not live in poverty, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, I've heard about this. I've read articles about it. I've seen films that mention it, but I haven't actually read the book. It's, and the it's one, a great book. Well worth reading on the base. Yes. Yes. Um, and, you know, God would love to have her on the podcast as well. And then Catherine Trebek 
Beck, um, who we mentioned earlier, who's a wonderful economist and um, associate of ours. And so she has written a book called The Economics of Arrival. She's co-authored this book, Ideas for a Grown-Up Economy, which again is about moving beyond just GDP growth is the be all and end all kind of measure. Um, but uh, if you want a podcast, if you're listening to this, then you're a podcast person and you want a podcast to check out over summer. Um, one that is just a little gem. They, it's just, it's got something that it's not the most like kind of amazing production values or rock star guests, although they do get really interesting people, but it's called The Principle of Charity. And I heard it recommended first, I think by Annabelle Crabb and Lee Sales on um, their Chat 10 Looks 3 podcast, which I also love. And if you want to hear intelligent, awesome women having a great conversation about the things that delight them, like, God, that podcast is just delightful. Um, but the principle of charity, what I love about it is I think there are a lot of people who talk about, we need to do anti-polarization work. We need to listen better. We need to, um, try to reach out beyond our bubbles. And these guys model it in a way that is just really sweet and really nerdy, but without the kind of, um, like there's nothing chest beady about it. There's nothing high horsey about it. You don't feel like you're having anything crammed down your throat. So what they do is they get two guests on who speak about a topic from two different perspectives. And it can be a political conversation or it could be like, is meditation better for you? Like meditation versus psychotherapy, which one is ultimately like a better approach to increasing well-being? Or so it's not just kind of hot button political issues. They tend to kind of, you know, but they've had like a, a guest recently talking about is inequality actually a bad thing. And what they get people to do is sort of summarize the most generous interpretation of the other person's argument by the end and talk about this is their strongest point. Like this is the other side's strongest point. This is the stuff that kind of convinces me or that I find quite compelling. And this is where I, you know, would would argue something different. Um, and so it's people who have their, you know, they're experts and they have their own unique perspective to bear, but they genuinely are listening with charity and, the, and assuming the best of intentions of the other side. And I find that, um, quite a powerful antidote to what we normally see sort of modeled. Um, and, and, and just valuing that as a space because, you know, opinion writers or Twitter people or what, you know, we're all out there trying to put forward our ideas and where do we model listening mm. as well? So I would say principle of charity for sure. Give it a try if you haven't already. Sounds like a good one. All right. Well, thank you. I just want to say a huge thank you to this community also of people who have um, taken up this podcast and given us ratings and reviews and shares, and we'll sometimes see it pop up in interesting spaces and newsletters as a, a recommendation. And it just makes us incredibly delighted um, to know that there is a community of people taking forward some of these ideas and sharing and, and putting it out there into the world. Um, I'll put in a little bit of a plug, which is to say for the first time, you can actually go to our website and donate. I know we're big girls now. We're, we've got our own capacity online for some um, online crowdfunding. So if you've loved uh, the podcast or any of the other work that we've done and you want to throw a few dollars our way, you are so welcome to do that. Go to australiaremade.org forward slash donate and I can put a link up there for you too. And really, I want to say thank you to you, Millie, for the delight of your company this season and we'll be back uh, sometime next year to kind of pick things up and, and carry it forward. 
Yeah, thanks, Lily. And I just hope all of us have a nice time to rest and relax and, you know, be with the people and the places that we love over summer. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, everybody. been The Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 plus years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I'm recording my part of our chat from Muinina country in Lutruwita, Tasmania. And I record from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. Our deepest respects to the elders and traditional custodians of these lands and waters. This podcast would not be possible without the talents of the incredible Anna Wilson, our producer. You can learn more about Australia Remade, sign up to get emails and join the community of remakers over on our website. That's australiaremade.org. And if you love the show, please rate and review on iTunes. If you want to send us your ideas or thoughts for future episodes or just share something that's on your mind, you can email us at podcast at australiaremade.org or give us a call. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for all that you do and for being part of this community. We'll see you next time. Bye.